Well, good morning. Glad that you could be here with us this morning. We have been enjoying our summer series in the book of Isaiah, focusing on chapters 40 to 43. We come this morning to our final uh, sermon in the series of Isaiah. And here to read portions of Isaiah 43 for us is Melissa. Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 7. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through, when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sabah in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is the word of the Lord. Spirit of God. As we finish our short series on the book of Isaiah, we see God taking central stage in this part of the book and particularly in this chapter, revealing himself as the God who allows us to conquer fear, but it's a particular kind of fear. It's a fear that I witnessed several years ago when I lived in Vancouver. I was in a meeting with several Christian leaders, and we were waiting for a husband and wife, also Christian leaders, part of our organization, and they were late. Finally, they came in. The husband was bloated. His eyes looked tired and dull. His complexion was off. He looked actually like he'd been poisoned. His wife was wiping tears from her eyes as she entered. They sat down. They apologized. They said, we've just been to a specialist. My husband has a rare condition, she said, that shuts his kidneys down. One had already shut down, and they just found out the second one was also shutting down. He was 45 years old. We were stunned into silence. And into that silence, his wife spoke words that so many of us have felt, but shuddered to say aloud. She said this, when we found out about the news, we had nothing to say. We just looked at each other. But I thought to myself, God, you are either asleep at the switch on this one, or you just don't care. Wherever you are in your journey of faith, this is a fear that stalks to the depths of your being. It is not the fear of death. It is a deeper fear. It is the fear of being abandoned by God. It is the fear that John Krakauer named in his book, Under the Banner of Heaven, best-selling New York Times author in this book, a man of no particular religious faith, says this, most of us fear death. Most of us yearn to comprehend how we got here and why, which is to say 
Most of us ache to know the love of our Creator. And we will no doubt feel that ache, most of us, for as long as we happen to be alive. Here, in this carefully crafted section, Isaiah gives Christians three truths that counter the lies that our heart tells us. These three truths are truths that those of us who are not Christians, I can only wish these were true of you. But for you who are Christian, these three truths are precious foundations for us when times get difficult. Because there are three lies that happen when suffering is either threatened or upon us. First one, my pain is the proper lens through which to see God. Second one, God doesn't really love me. Third one, this pain is primarily about my development if it's about anything at all. It is these three lies that Isaiah deals with in this passage. First truth that we need to look at, fear not. I have redeemed you. I am with you. This is verses 1 and 2. He begins 43 by saying, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. It starts with a promise. It's begun by the Hebrew word we translate here, but now. God is saying, despite what I just said in Isaiah 42 about my hot anger at your sin, your indulgence, your idolatry, despite my settled judgment, but now I'm saying something to you as the one who created you. And get what I'm saying to you now, for that is this. I'm also the one who redeemed you. I who formed you rescued you. I who breathed you into this world delivered you out of slavery in Egypt. I have called you by name. This is referring to God revealing himself to Israel through Abraham first and then Abraham's descendants. Jacob, one of his descendants, was renamed Israel and then all of his descendants were called the nation of Israel. He called one nation his very own. And he said, I will be your God and you will be called mine. This is intimate language. It's growing in intimacy. He's the creator and now he's the one who calls them mine. But it doesn't stop there. He doesn't just form the nation. It says, I have redeemed you. Here he's talking about his redemption of Israel from slavery to Egypt. They'd escaped into Egypt to escape starvation these people of God, but there they fell into slavery by Egyptian hands, battered, bruised, enslaved, and oppressed. They were in misery, and God came down. And through signs and wonders and miracles and the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea, He delivered them through to freedom. And then He was with them in the desert, While they wandered, he was with them day and night, guiding them by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, feeding them day and night, watering them day and night, speaking to them, forgiving them, holding their hand. And then finally, after 40 years, getting them through the second set of waters, the Jordan River, another miracle of the waters opening, and they pass into Palestine, which becomes home. 
You see, this is the divine presence sustaining them with food, water, protection. This is what every Jewish reader understood when he heard, I have redeemed you, passing through the waters. God has been with us. And the first point God wants to make is right here. I have redeemed you in the past. Look at my track record when answering the question whether I love you and whether I care for you and whether I'm with you. Don't look through the present lens of your difficulties to decide the question of where I am. Look at what I have done and my promises. You see Israel facing another slavery. That's the whole first 39 chapters of Isaiah. You are going to be enslaved. First to Assyria, then to the Babylonians. Then he says, I was with you in the exodus. I will be with you in this exile. And by the way, this is the whole point of the New Testament. Because the New Testament describes another exodus, does it not? It describes becoming a people purchased out of slavery to our sin into the freedom of being the children of God. It was done by Jesus, the final Moses, the final Israel. He freed us from that deadly slavery of our selfishness, of our own independence, of our own cruelty. And Jesus came came all the way down, came into history, came into a human body, came into rejection, came into torture and death to pay our debts upon the cross, saying it is finished and giving up his life. What did he finish? He finished the payment of debt that you and I owe for our sin. He finished paying the price that breaks the slavery of you and I to the power of our sin. He finished the work needed by God to remove all the obstacles between us and God's love. And so here we see God saying to them, as He says to you and I right now, look at my track record. Look at what I have done. I redeemed Israel And then I sent my beloved son and I redeemed every person who will believe in Jesus by the blood of Jesus. Look at my faithfulness over the centuries even when you've not been. I redeemed you because you were mine. I sent my son to redeem you. You are mine. You will be mine. You cannot not be mine. Therefore, I am still with you who are mine. Here we see God going after one of our favorite ways of interpreting His character, one of the most natural to us and one of the most corruptive, wrong, and stupid of us, and that is to peer through circumstances of adversity or suffering or fear and look at God through that lens. Viewing God through our present circumstances rather than His past work, His promises is wrong. To see God through the lens of our circumstances rather than seeing our circumstances through the lens of God is to get it upside down. Men and women, boys and girls, pain and fear are tremendous distorters of perspective. 
Pain and fear change the way we interpret almost everything. Pain and fear shrink our point of view to the here and to the now, and they create this buffer that, that through which we refract and see everything and interpret everything. I remember when I was uh, in college, I had a crush on a girl. You know what happens. We dated briefly, I mean like two weeks or so. Um, that was about the longest relationship I think I had for a while. And then she broke up with me, and I was in pain. Uh, we agreed, though, that the breakup was amicable and we were going to go to a party a lot of our friends were going to that we'd be able to go together. So I went to that party and she did too. And um, we promised that we wouldn't let our breakup bother us and we'd act normally and she did. <laughs> and I didn't. I sat there miserably, sulking in the corner about my broken heart and how this girl had so easily gotten over me and was flirting with all these guys. She didn't even talk to me that night. But three or four days later, back in college, she caught me in the hallway, pulled me aside, and said, hey, you were miserable at the party last week. Why? I said, uh, no, I wasn't. Yes, you were. Well, you know, we broke up and we agreed to go to the party, but you... You flirted with other guys and you ignored me and you were cruel. And she looked me right in the eye and she said, no, I wasn't cruel. I did what we agreed we would do. You were not hurt by me. You were hurt by you. That's what pain does. It distorts, it disfigures. Our present pain and suffering may be great, and for some of us, we have great pain, we have great suffering, and we have great anxiety because of what may be before us. I don't want to deny any of that. Pain is a mystery. It's an alien thing that we were made to not have. God made us to not have pain, and he will remake us that way one day if we believe in Christ. So the fear of future pain is in one way very natural. But using the fear of pain or pain itself as the lens through which to see God is very wrong. God says, you're looking at me through the long lens. You're looking at me through the lens of your circumstances instead of the lens of my grace, my love, my mercy, and my history with my people. Trust that, and then trust my promises. As I was with you in past afflictions and suffering in exile, so I will be with you in every future trial and affliction. Bank on it. Fear not. I have redeemed you. You are mine. I have not abandoned you. I am right here. Secondly, we have to look at what in this passage is the root of the matter and what in our hearts is probably the root of the matter. Because for some of us, to hear I am with you creates complicated emotions because we're not sure the I am who is with us really loves us. And so here we get to verses 3 and four, which are the emotional, literary, and theological center of the passage. You may not have noticed this, but if you were an original Jewish reader, you would have caught this. This passage starts with, I created you, and ends with, whom I have created. 
Created, created. Those are the guardrails. Those are the first and the last points he makes. The second point and the second to last point he makes is fear not and fear not. You see the structure he's creating? This is called a chiasm in Hebrew literary form. And in the middle, built into the middle, is the climactic statement of the whole passage. And here it is. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you. That should be in the past tense. That's the Hebrew in the past. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Here, men and women, is the reason why God has redeemed us and can be trusted, and that is because of who He is and what He does. Men and women, learn to look closely at your Bibles. Don't, don't just read it, study it. Look at the way he describes himself. There's a threefold description of who he is. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but if you know anything about Jewish readers, they emphasize things by repeating them. When Jesus says, truly, truly, it's like putting it in bold with an exclamation mark. Here, there's something kind of repeated for the third, three times. It's the highest form of Jewish emphasis. When God says, holy, holy, holy in Isaiah 6, you can't get any more emphatic than that. But here, he describes himself three times. Now, he uses three slightly different terms, but I think the emphasis is what's going on here. But look at the terms because there's an escalating progression of intimacy in the three. For I am the Lord your God. In the Hebrew, Yahweh. Yahweh. The word that is God above all gods, the creator God, the God of the cosmos. The word Yahweh is written in the Hebrew without vowels because they want to protect the otherness of God. This is God at his most transcendent. This is the God who created everything. If science is anywhere close to right, and they have really no idea at this point, but their guess as to how many galaxies are in the universe right now starts at about 120 billion. Some go up to as much as 400 billion. They're arguing over it. Now let me put some perspective on that. Our galaxy, the Milky Way is not the biggest, it's not the smallest. Our galaxy has 100,000 million suns or stars. That's the Milky Way. 100,000 million stars or suns. I don't know how many planets that is. That's one of at least 120 billion galaxies. This is the God who holds all of that vastness in the palm of his hand. But he's not just the God of the cosmos. He's secondly the Holy One of Israel. This is more intimate, less transcendent. This is the one who's come down and revealed himself to his people. First to Abraham, then to his descendants, of course to Moses, the God who made covenant with the Israelites to be their God. Above all the other races and nations of the earth, he will be theirs. And finally it says, your Savior, the one who delivers you from danger, from trials, from suffering and oppression. The Hebrew word usually means physical deliverance, but it can also mean spiritual deliverance from sin and consequences. Men and women, boys and girls, you, this is who he is. 
The God of the universe, the creator of all things, has stooped down to become the God of you. The God who is infinite is infinitely personal. But the text continues. That's not just who he is. Listen to what he does. He says, I gave. What he did in the past, I gave nations in exchange for you. Scholars are actually all over the map. They're not quite sure what this refers to. It appears that perhaps other nations were allowed to be invaded by these great imperial powers to delay or defer Israel's invasion. That's their best historical guess. John Oswald, a leading Old Testament scholar on Isaiah, puts it this way. He says, the precise meaning of the ransom metaphor is open to discussion. But the general meaning is clear, and that is this. For God, no price is too high to pay for the redemption of his own. No price is too high. Do we deserve this? No. We're fickle. We're faithless. We trust in ourselves. So then why? Hear God's own heart. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. He did it. Because of the infinite love he has for us and for no other reason. A little uh, while ago, I had what could be called a rough time uh, with my daughter. Uh, we, we can both get feisty, and so when we clash, it can get testy. And so we weren't doing that well relationally. And um, I thought probably, if, if I can guess at what I was doing, I can't remember exactly, but I thought she'd probably been disrespectful or something, and she would probably thought I'd been too strict, and my wife probably thought we were both right. <laughs> And then we were somewhere and I bought her something. And she just looked at me because we weren't right relationally. And she said, Dad, why'd you do that? And I mumbled something like, I don't know, I felt like it. You're my daughter. And she just kind of gave me that look like that's not a satisfactory answer, which it wasn't. But I didn't have the guts to say or the humility to say or the moral courage at the moment to say was, Despite what grievances I may have with you, you are my daughter. You are precious in my eyes, and I love you. Men and women, if you have faith in Jesus, this is what he says to you. You are my beloved. You are precious in my eyes, and I love you. How precious. Zephaniah three seventeen. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's how precious. How precious? One verse later, a clue is given. Hebrew tense changes, it now is in the future. It says, I will give men in exchange for you. Scholars aren't sure, but most scholars agree this is pointing forward to the future. To one man himself, Jesus Christ. God, the God who redeemed Israel, the God of the universe who bound himself in love to one people is the God who allowed himself to be bound by nails and rope to a cross 
to show his undying, infinite, unconditional love for you and me by paying the penalty for our sin and breaking the power of our sin by dying for you and I. It was his joy to die for our sin, to suffer for our freedom, to endure God's righteous judgment for our justification and to allow us to enter into eternal communion with God. But now stop for a moment because I need to ask you, who sent him to the cross? His father. John Owen. John Owen uh, in many of his writings speaks to a problem that he found amongst people who grew up in the church. And that is this. Few of us seem to be able to carry in our hearts and minds up to the height of faith and rest our souls in the love of the Father. At the best, many of us think there is no sweetness in the Father toward us, but only what has been purchased at the high price of the blood of Jesus. John Owen's point is mine. Who told Jesus to go to the cross? to whom Jesus willingly assented. The Father. The God the Father loved you enough to send His Son to the cross. God the Father loved you enough to sacrifice His beloved one. God the Father loves you just as much as God the Son does. For God the Father so loved the world, you and I, that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should have eternal life. God so loves you and I. Why? Because his heart is just simply filled with the infinitude of love. And that infinitude of love flows out of his holy heart and his holiness loves to give mercy. His holiness makes him happy in redeeming sin. His holiness makes him happy in taking whatever obstacles lay between him and the beloved that's you and I and removing those obstacles that's our sin by sending his own son to pay the price for it that's how much he loves us why frankly I can't imagine why I don't have that infinitude of love I'm going to ask him one day but I know this the God who said to his people fear not I have redeemed you is the same God who had his chosen servant, Paul the Apostle, write this word at the end of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Sorry, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. 
In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Men and women, you can't be separated from the love of Christ if you've had faith in him. The unconditionality of his love is the unbreakable anchor of the certitude of his love. You didn't earn it. You can't unearn it. You can't slow it down. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Romans chapter 5, verse 21. God has not abandoned us when we suffer. He does not abandon us when we suffer. He does, has not turned his back on us. He will not turn his back on us. He never forgets us. He always forgives us. He entered our broken world of evil and rebellion and selfishness and pride and he lived with us, died for us, rose for us, prays for us, is preparing a place for us and is coming back so that we can be with him for all eternity and he's singing over us with joy right now. Extraordinary. Unbreakable. Unshakable because unconditional. I'd go straight to communion right now but there's a third part to this text. It's the second fear not in the text and it's rather hard and it's fairly profound and you need to have a rock solid understanding of God's love for you to be able to bear it and hear it Because if we've been raised in our present culture where our pain automatically entitles us to get engulfed in it and allows it to frame our reality and make it about us, we're tempted to ask the same question that Isaiah is answering here. You may love me, but why is this happening? This makes no sense. If you love me, this is incoherent with love because pain just interrupts life. It interrupts flourishing. It has no use or meaning whatsoever. What's the deal? And if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, you know that the answer to our secular culture is confused because there really isn't any answer. It does have no purpose. But what if? What if, men and women, what if your pain, suffering, and trials had a purpose so beautiful, so grand, so powerful and life-shaping that the future of world history itself could be shaped partly by your own suffering. I think that's the argument of the text here. Let's get into it. The first point, remember, fear not, I have redeemed you, therefore I am with you. The second point, the I am who's with you is the God who loves you and finds you precious. Now finally, our last point, fear not, I will use your suffering to enhance my glory. It's not about you. It's about him. Final few verses. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. From the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Do you hear that? He's talking about a future day when there will be this great ingathering. 
Now, it could simply mean the ingathering of all Jewish people into some time of restoration of physical Israel, but scholars now admit that the language here is very expansive. It doesn't sound like God is simply talking about the Jewish people. It sounds like he's expanding it to a worldwide ingathering. And indeed, from the New Testament, we read that rightly into this passage because that is precisely what has happened in history. The Lord Jesus raised from the dead, declared to be the Son of God by his miraculous resurrection from death, gathered his disciples together before he went back to heaven and said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus commissioned his followers to go to the north, the south, the east, the west, to bring in all of God's sons and daughters from afar because they were created for his glory. And he is saying here, when you pass through the waters and the fires, not only will I be with you, I will use those trials as part of this ingathering. Do you know, men and women, that if you are a Christian, your suffering has eternal meaning? That your suffering is being used by God to show the world the truth and the beauty of Jesus? That you're enduring suffering without fear, without resentment, with peace and love and calm confidence in God is an argument that our skeptical culture has no answer for. Because we know that when suffering happens, our world has a question for us, and it's a great one. Why would your loving God allow this kind of suffering? It's a good question. But our world has no answer for our answer. When we say that suffering is weaving a beautiful tapestry of redemption into the world and we trust the God who redeemed us to be with us and to use it for his glory. They have no answer to that. It astonishes them. The world has no answer for a teenage girl that is a friend of my daughter. Her parents died tragically when she was quite young. Now teenage, this girl, along with her siblings, was adopted by another family. When talking about it, she does not complain. She does not rage or rant. She does not allow the tragedy to dominate her perspective. She lives a life of quiet joy and peace, and her demeanor, her conduct, her life of carrying her tra tragedy with such humble trust at such a young age is an argument that no one I've met can refute. It encourages me every time I see her and every Christian I know who has heard it. And it astonishes every non-Christian that I have told about it. She is like a Japanese kintsugi. You know the broken cups that are reweaved together using gold to put them back together in the filling spots where the fissures and the brokenness happened? Weaved together with fillings of pure gold, Kintsugi makes these cups and this pottery more beautiful by the presence of the cracks. That's, that's the gospel. The Apostle Paul said this about his own suffering in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Because when we face trials without fear, 
We build up the church. We give glory to God, and we show the world a strength, a peace, a broken, humble, trusting kind of love that they just have no answers for. Because that love, that peace, that can only come from a heart that knows beyond all doubt the unshakable truth of this, that you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Isaiah wrote these words for us to rest our lives upon. Jesus lived these words in his life and death and resurrection for us to build our lives upon. So let us rest and then let us build. Families, build this into the rhythms of your family life. Make the love of this God the center of your family rhythms. Dads and moms, build this into your own heart every morning before work or whatever, every night before bed. Bring this into the family times together. At your meals, bring your fears to each other around the dinner table and then pray the gospel truth of Isaiah 43 into those fears. We've been redeemed. He is with us. He will make something beautiful and glorious out of this. If you're going to work or going to school and you have fear or anxieties, maybe you're going to a new school, maybe you've got a new job, maybe you're going back to work after COVID finally, bring your fears to God about these things. Pray Isaiah 43 into your lives this week. Maybe you're an artist. You know the power of pain to give new insights into the reality of this world. It often pulls away the facade of being put together that we like to show, and it shows the cracks and the brokenness in us, in our world, but let's go deeper. Through the reality of pain to the deeper reality of the love of God beneath and behind and beside and inside the pain because the God who uses suffering like gold filling to make masterpieces of kintsugi out of these clay vessels we call ourselves. Grace Toronto, bring into your small groups, bring into your life, bring to Sunday morning this attitude that I am God's precious and beloved and I need not fear. You fight the devil through your dependence. You fight the lies of the devil through the truths of God's promises and the facts of God's love. That's exactly what Jesus did at the beginning of his ministry when he went out into the desert. He was tempted in his first temptation and he fought the lies of the devil through repeating the words of Deuteronomy And then in his last temptation, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he fought the lies of the devil through his dependence on God, saying, not my will, but thine be done. And when he faced his fear and endured his suffering and redeemed his people and changed the world, he went up and sent his spirit that with his spirit, We can go in his steps, face our fear, endure our suffering, show his glory, and see the world changed. Fear not, people of God. He is with us. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace. May you 
and all of the infinitude of your love crash through our lenses, focus so much on our circumstances. And may we learn to settle ourselves and anchor ourselves on the truth that we are your beloved and you are ours. In Christ's name, amen.